thing. The NIH, the CDC, and the FDA are not involved in medical. It's not who we call. So to have them dictate our medical practices has to stop. It should not ever have been done. We've got to find a way to fight back. The, the public knows that hospitals are dangerous places, like Dr. Merrick said, and we've got, to, we've got to reinvent the wheel, basically, because our current system is the corporate practice of medicine telling doctors what to do when we already know what to do. There's a nuance, and we know each and every patient has a slight potential thing that we might do differently. And if we don't do that, we are not, we are not good doctors. Yeah, and so what, what I want to know is this completely a new phenomenon Bottom line is, we were with the hospitals. It felt like a partnership. And we kind of felt like the insurers were the other side of things, like we were kind of us against them. But the hospitals started pooling together. They started building these big organizations. And now they are the most powerful entity in medical care for us. And so we have so, to deal with them. So it, start, it started, this creep started with the consolidation of these hospitals Correct. That, that decided, you know, this is how we're going to, through our hospital chain. Here are the protocols we're going to follow. And why I, this is cost-driven, this is a cheaper way, I, to, you know, this is a more efficient or effective way. Can I speak to that for a second? Because I want to say that prior to COVID, I did see some of this starting to happen. I was a clinical leader in a major uh, U.S. institution, an academic medical center, and I started to hear these echoes of standardized, standardized, standardized. So it was this push to standardization. Now, the, the problem with that is a patient is not a car. You know, hospitals are not factories. Dr. Cariotti spoke very eloquently about that, that, that beautiful mystery of a patient and the phase of disease and illness and, and all their host of comorbidities and predilections and medicines. You know, it's a very complex problem that we have to solve. There is no standard solution. That push towards standardization that was beginning before COVID hyper-accelerated into some sort of totalitarian top-down control of the practice of medicine. Dr. Marek just spoke about it. The autonomy, the freedom, the liberty to, to make decisions using your decades of expertise and experience was removed. You were told to use this drug at this dose for this duration. I've never seen that happening. It's unprecedented. And I have to call out one particular point, is if you want to talk about hospital medicine, how far we've advanced. My strongly held expert opinion as someone who's been treating COVID in hospitals and ICUs for now almost two years, is that the proximate cause of death of nearly everyone in the hospital is the severe, persistent, and pervasive underdosing of corticosteroids. The standard NIH-recommended guideline dose is dexamethasone at a dose of six milligrams a day. That dose is less than I give my 80-year-old patients with emphysema who are wheezing. These are patients on ventilators, whited out lungs with almost no gas exchange uh, capacity left, and we're giving them anemic and pathetic doses of steroids, and they die. They die and they die, and they keep coming into my ICU, and I look at their record of what they were treated with in the hospital, and they're stuck on this anemic dose of steroids. So why would that happen? Why would that happen? Why aren't doctors thinking and saying they're sicker and escalating doses? I don't know why, it's this totalitarianism. And I also, again, Senator, forgive me, I'm going to call out the C word again, the corruption, because it is my strongly held belief as an expert that wasn't able to come here today. Also listen, also listen to the nurses, who are the, all these, all these people are the heroes of COVID. Uh, I guess I've always put my faith, and I've listened a little closer to the doctors who actually treated patients with PP, and I'm saying that wasn't unreasonable. You know, the, the history of the fear is real. I, mean, I, I remember the, the Chinese responders in their moon suits, and everybody with PP, and I'm saying that wasn't unreasonable. We didn't know. I mean, maybe some people were more enlightened, they knew, but I guess what I've always thought, and I need to point out, uh, you had a nice cushy job in Wisconsin, you know, uh, 
beautiful, probably about three below zero or something like that, and started. And you went, you went to New York, the hot spot, because you had the courage and compassion to treat patients. Uh, I guess I've always put my faith, and I've listened a little closer to the doctors that actually treated patients, and a whole lot didn't, which is why I asked you know, an ophthalmologist or a pediatrician that wasn't able to come here today. Also listen, also listen to the nurses, who are the, all these, all these people are the heroes of COVID. And now, because of the mandates, a lot of them, let's face it, a lot of them got sick. Dr. Freed's sick, got COVID, because he had the courage and compassion to treat. They've recovered from COVID. They're now treating vaccine injured. There is no way they are going to get the vaccine. They will not do it, and yet now we're pushing these, these mandates, even though we know the vaccine doesn't prevent either infection or transmission, and we're still pushing it, doing a great deal of harm to our healthcare system, exacerbating the healthcare shortage. Dr. Corey pointed out, I guess we have a nurse um, that, that uh, would like to say a few words. Can you, can you come up and introduce yourself? And we also have a, a doctor here with a coat on that, no, that's the gentleman that looks a little bit like Dr. Malone. <laughs> so please, please introduce yourself and tell us your story. And then we, we have to get to some of the vaccine injuries and some of it. Absolutely. I, go ahead. Yes, my name's Jennifer Bridges. Um, I'm, an, I'm, I'm still a nurse, but I was fired from Houston Methodist. I'm the one you might have seen all over the news. We were the first one mandated with a COVID shot. So I blew it up on the national media. We have a huge state and federal lawsuit because we didn't want to be guinea pigs. We saw for ourselves in the hospital people coming in with adverse reactions after getting the Pfizer shot. And the crazy thing is, is let me tell you a couple things about Methodist Hospital down in Houston, Texas. When they first started with COVID, I did that COVID unit on and off the whole time till they fired me in June, right? They started the first two months with hydroxychloroquine. They actually used it in the hospital. Then they cut it back real quick, switched it to remdesivir and all these other expensive drugs. And we're like, why? And we would ask these doctors. No one could give us a reason. They just said, well, the hospital policy changed. But they didn't know why. And you know, most of those doctors in that hospital would not even go in those COVID rooms. There was maybe two that would. They would stand outside, make us dress up head to toe, and go in with an iPad. So the only form of communication those doctors would have at Houston Methodist with the COVID patients was through an iPad. So literally, we'd go in there, they'd be talking to them, never assess the lungs, never look at them, nothing, go to discharge them. I would come back out and be like, no, have you listened to them? They can't breathe. Like, the wheezing's horrible. They had no clue. They weren't even looking at that. And to address one, sorry, I'm like, <laughs> I got a little emotional back here. I've been there, I've done the whole shebang, right? Even I was the first one at Methodist that they asked to do window visits because when these COVID patients were dying and they never did this with anybody else dying, family was not allowed to come in to say goodbye. They couldn't hold their hand. They were left alone in these rooms. I was asked because I was one of the most compassionate nurses they had there, will you do these window visits? They would escort family into the cafeteria windows I would go there sweating my butt off for almost an hour and a half, two hours, just to put the phone by that loved one's ear so they could say goodbye. I would stay in there as long as I could. And other nurses, they wouldn't want to do it. They'd be like, no, it gets too hot, or I don't have time for that. And the things you would hear were just insane to me. And I'm like, I don't care about, you know, what's going on with me. This is way more important. And I would stay in there with them, listening you know, to these families say goodbye. They'd even be on the window with another cell phone and go like this so they could say goodbye. And, oh, yeah, I'll love to talk to you later. I have so much information for you. 
But I have, right before I got fired, and I tried the right way. I didn't go to the media at first. I actually had a meeting with my CEO and CNO at Methodist in Baytown, David Bernard and Becky Chalupa. They caught me going around with my little petition to say, you know, if people agreed with our stance, not to force us against our will. Somebody told them I was doing that. They called me into this meeting where they sat me down, they threatened me, they told me I had to stop. They could fire me over this because I was soliciting. And I told them, I said, well, what if I went to the public? What if I went to other hospitals? What do you think they would say? He looked me in the face and I said, and he said, I strongly advise you against that. And he even told me 100% compliance was more important than my individual autonomy as a nurse. And that is a huge, huge slap in the face. And then after I got so public, basically other doctors, whistleblowers were coming to me to share information. So I've seen text messages, I've seen emails where Methodist Hospital threaten their doctors. You cannot sign medical exemptions, you cannot talk about, you cannot report adverse reactions to these vaccines. And then if you do, and if somebody was actually brave enough to do that on writing, there were other people higher up to erase those. Those were not to be allowed on record. I have the proof and I have the people that have shown me these things. By the way, I, I, can, I can confirm everything you're telling me. I've heard yes. countless times from other nurses. And I just want anybody listening, our healthcare system is, is, suffers because you're not in it anymore. And hundreds of people like you are no longer in it because they were fired by these vaccine mandates. I also, I also, I also want a, you know, a little thought experiment here. Uh -huh. Can you imagine, I mean, what, what you just described, I mean, let's face it, it the, the inhumanity, the cruelty, just the heartbreaking examples of what happened during COVID. Can you imagine if we, one, would have risk, risk stratified our outlook on this, if we would have embraced early treatment so that we realized very early on, you don't have to die from COVID. This, this, this could be no worse this could be no worse than flu or, or colds. Can you imagine what our society would look like had we treated that way? There would be so many more people alive right now and not dead. And, and we maybe wouldn't have a million adverse events. We wouldn't be here. Maybe 22,000 deaths. We really can't tell. In our closing minutes here, okay, I've, I've got I've to have Bree Dressen uh, talk about why the vaccine injured are in the exact same position as you treating doctors are. Or the, the problem that we've had with early treatment where the, the CDC, the NIH, the, oh, yeah. Sorry. the COVID gods won't acknowledge these repurposed, cheap, generic drugs and how harmful that's been to our response. But in the same vein, Bree, talk about why it's so important that people acknowledge the, just the possibility that your injury might have been caused by a vaccine. Talk, talk about why that's so important.